Beloved congregation, please turn again to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Well, this morning we sought to examine the mark of a true Christian as one whose soul is purified through the gospel. We saw that there is this difference between the believer and the unbeliever, whereas the unbeliever has a conscience defiled with the knowledge of his guilt and sin, which corrupts and pollutes all of his life with more and more sinful disobedience. The Christian has this. The grace of God needed in order to obey the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian applies the gospel unto his conscience. There is the knowledge and awareness, indeed the firm conviction, that we are not in a state of sin, but in a state of Grace that we are forgiven for Christ Jesus' sake. This is essential to understand. Where the conscience has this word pronounced over it, forgiven, righteous in the sight of God for Jesus' sake, a completely different kind of life is the result, one in which the soul is purified, Whereas before it was unable to please God because it was fearful of God, hateful towards God. Now we have a completely different orientation, a very different relationship unto God. It is that of a loving father and friend and Lord. And so as this very different relationship to God, whereby our soul is purged of its defilement, every day brought more and more into the likeness of Christ because of the knowledge of his grace, we then are able to carry out the duties that befit true Christians. It does no good, you see, to tell those who are in a state of sin and condemnation to pull up your bootstraps, try harder, act as Christians where in fact they do not know the Lord at all. But where there is a true change of heart and soul, there must also be this change of life. How can we, who have been saved from our sins, continue any longer therein? An impossibility. And so the apostle writes here to the Christians in Asia Minor, those pilgrims living in dire straits, much persecution, much trouble, much hardship, to occupy themselves with the duty of love, and particularly, he says, seeing you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. 
Indeed, it is most important that we do not neglect this teaching. True Christian love. For the lack of sound teaching upon this doctrine, we see that churches become lazy, lethargic, and weak in the important business of loving one another, which God would have us occupy ourselves with. Let us consider this theme of Christian love, Christian love, and we will consider three things. First, the reasons for this love. Second, the enemies of this love. And third, the activity of this love. Christian love, the reasons, the enemies, and the activity. Well, if there were no other reason, the fact that it's in black and white in the sacred scriptures should make this worthy of our closest attention. That the life of the Christian is to be one of love. We are to have hearts that not only delight in others, but desire the good of others. And more than that, act for the good of others. Others. The very same word for love, agape, is used earlier on in this chapter to refer to the love that is had for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, whom not having seen, ye love. The one who has a delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, a desire to please him and to bring about his good and glory, well, that same one must have such a desire that overflows unto our neighbors as well. But in particular, you can see that this passage concerns that love which is directed towards our church, to our Brothers and sisters in the Lord, those who are connected with us in that unique and special way. And so it's in that sense that we'll be taking this. And I wish to begin simply by laying out some of the reasons why this is so important. If we would look at the surface of this passage first, very clearly, the reason is this. It is the purpose of our salvation, certainly one of the purposes Notice how it's put there. That your, he, he says in verse 22, seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. So this is the goal and the purpose to which these things um, are all directed. All of the work of God through the Holy Spirit, all of the uh, precious blood of Christ that has been shed, all of the eternal, powerful grace directed towards the Lord's people, it has this as its purpose, love. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, now the end or purpose of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. A heart that has been purified and is directed unto this love or charity that is the goal that the Lord especially has for us. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 
He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Show me one whose heart is filled with hatred for his brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'll show you one who is no true Christian. Show me one whose heart is filled with love and delight for his brothers and sisters. And there is a mark of true grace in the soul. I read elsewhere in 1 John, and you see that the apostle belabors this point. Read all your New Testament. This is pressed time and time again, the importance of this as a mark of the Lord's grace and salvation. Notice this as well. It is important because the church is a family. Yes, there's a sense in which we love all those who are image bearers of God, but there's a unique love which must characterize the family of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but he goes on and he says, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see, the Christian church is a family. When we speak of the true church, that church which is separated from God's eternal love to be a people separated unto eternal life and salvation. They are a people adopted into God's family. They call upon the same father. They have the same elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they greet one another as brother and sister. They are a household, the household of faith. What would we think of a family that thinks nothing for one another, that does not carry one another's trials and burdens, well, we would say that family has very deep problems, not living up unto the purpose the Lord has called them unto. And so also the church does not reflect the purpose that we have been called to from the Lord if we do not show family love and affection. Yes, love for all people, but especially the household of faith. Before we leave this point, just this last thing, in particular, in particular, it is the gospel which binds us unto this duty. Yes, we can say the law does. The law requires love for the brethren and for the sisters in Christ. But especially when we consider how it is that we have been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ and come to know that through his gospel, we see that there's a particular character that is stamped upon us that is inconsistent with lovelessness towards other Christians. Jesus said to his disciples on that night in which he was betrayed in John 13, verse 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, and, he, and ye also love one another. But by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love to another. So it is, as Jesus has loved us, 
A love that took him all the way to the cross, so also we are called to love one another. Why is it the church's testimony is so often weak in the world today? Well, because they don't look at us and see the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ought it to be that it should be exactly as Jesus says here. All men should look at how Christians treat one another and say those are followers of Jesus. But the same point made in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is not a love that holds back anything. This is a sacrificial love that seeks not its own, but the good of others. That love which was exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so the Lord Jesus' love is a pattern for our own love that we show towards other Christians. I hope that that grips you. I hope that that really drives home how important this is. If this is important to the Lord Jesus Christ, then no one can call themselves a Christian who easily neglects this calling to love other Christians. So we see... The reasons for it. Now, let us consider in particular the enemies of this love. It would not be the case. The Bible would so often have to insist upon this duty if there were not threats to its right execution. We would not have to be told so many times if there weren't things that would prevent us from loving one another. What are these enemies? that we may discern if we would consider what Peter is saying here. Look again. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See love one another with a pure heart fervently. Well, I think in the first place we can say that there are enemies within. Enemies within. The emphasis there is that this love comes from a pure heart. A heart that indeed has been changed through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. But so also bears forth the fruit that is in keeping with that purified heart. That is sincere in devotion unto this goal and objective. And so... When we ask the question, what are the enemies that would hinder us from rightly loving one another as Christians? That is where we first need to begin. Why might we not love one another out of a pure heart? What might drag us back into the corruption and the lovelessness of the life that we knew before grace? I think an important clue is another word that's used here, unfeigned, unfeigned. That's not a word that we might use today. But if you look at how the Apostle James translates that in chapter 3, verse 17 of the book of James, 
I think it might be helpful. And I'll read that, that whole verse. And he uses the word at the end of him. James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the last one. Without hypocrisy. That is, I think, a better way to translate this word. It's easier to understand. We know what hypocrisy is. Someone who puts on an appearance of love while inside there is anything but going on. Someone who maybe uses words that might seem loving. One that might want to appear loving to others, but inside there is anything but. What might appear to be true love is actually a love which has many strings attached. What might appear to be true love for the brothers and sisters in the Lord is in fact just a show, just a farce, fake love. Terrible to contemplate that the apostle would have to warn against this danger, this enemy. How is it that this would take root? A hypocritical love whereby it is not true and genuine. Well, I think one uh, parallel passage that might be helpful is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. That really gets to the very heart of the matter. The battle within against this enemy of hypocritical love begins with a sinful love of self and glorying in self. Indeed, we can say that there is a proper love for self. Indeed, the law itself teaches us we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so there's a sense in which a proper regard for your well-being and happiness is assumed in the law. And yet there is one in which rather than following in the pattern of Christ and his commandments seeks to operate from this principle of vain glory or pride, which the apostle says leads to strife. The opposite of that is, of course, a proper humility, a lowliness of mind whereby we esteem others better than ourselves. That really should characterize the heart of a Christian. If indeed you're serious about loving others, the thing that needs to get out of the way is that prideful self that treats others as a means unto an end. Your own pleasure, your own desires. And so it is everyone else can appear as barriers to what it is that you want rather than those who you must pour into and and seek the good of. I think that that is something that is especially dangerous in our own day. If we are to be serious about this commandment, let us examine ourselves first. Let us examine our hearts. Let us come before the Lord and his searching eye that knows us all together and repent of all such attitudes and desires contrary to this commandment. But if we speak of the 
enemy within, we should also speak of the enemy without. And, and really, they're not strictly separated. But what I want to speak here are the difficulties that emerge without ourselves that can lead to the challenge of truly loving others. And I find that in our text, if you would see how it uh, speaks particularly there of um, love one another with a pure heart fervently, fervently. And the idea there is a love that stretches, that exerts itself. It's the, this the uh, word that you would use if you describe the muscle that is stretched out, exerting itself in order to accomplish its objective. And so you can think about it this way. The one who is serious about loving others, where maybe they have fallen away from this duty for some time, they're like the one who goes to a gym maybe for the very first time. They realize they need to get a bit serious about uh, taking care of their health and and uh, making sure that they're caring for the, for that, and so they go in there and they have this great aspiration. I'm going to be uh, someone who goes to the gym from now on, and then they they begin to lift weights, and wow, it it actually is heavy. There's resistance. There's difficulty. There's challenge. And you wonder that people get the gym membership, and then it tends to lag and and fall into disuse. So it is when it comes to loving others. When you actually get into the nitty-gritty of living with other sinful human beings within the church, even those who are redeemed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, even those adopted into the family of the Father, even those kinds of people can be difficult to love. Where it is that you have expectations, maybe even you think them pure and godly expectations for how others are to treat yourself. Suddenly you find that you are continually running against their own sin and their own shortcomings and their own difficulties. It says in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So that very commandment from which the Lord Jesus quoted so famously has indeed this danger of living with among the people of God and having an attitude of revenge, of harboring a grudge. And such would not be necessary if we did not live with sinners. And yet we do. It doesn't surprise us when we regard our own sins that others should have to treat us with a measure of grace and patience. But where it comes to the sins of others, well, there can be a short fuse. There can be indeed a limit to our forbearance and patience. And so this attitude of lovelessness takes root. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Indeed, those things are permanently joined together. 
knowing the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ towards us and forgiving others. We pray, do we not? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And how could we ever pray that? And how could we ever imagine that we are true partakers of the forgiving grace of the Lord if we withhold that where others sin against us? Indeed, having a forgiving attitude where others show themselves to be sinners like ourselves is inseparable from an attitude of love. Where there is no forgiveness, where there is not an attitude that delights to overlook, to forget, to dismiss with the hurt that others cause us, then there really can be no future for the church. Because it is a standing contradiction to the gospel itself that we would claim to be the church where we harbor grudges and bitterness towards one another. The pattern the Lord has laid out for us where we go to the one who is offended. We share the fault. We, we seek reconciliation in the path of repentance, honesty, respect, and reconciliation. That is the way that Christians treat one another. So we see that there's enemies without, enemies within. We see that there are difficulties and challenges with loving others. And yet this is what we are called unto. This is what the Lord is pleased to give. And this is what we must give our best exertions and energy to. And so with that, let me bring you to our third point, which concerns the activity of this love. I want to unfold for you some practical ways in which you and I ought to be searching our hearts and lives, considering how we can love one another better as a church family. And in particularly putting it that way, I don't mean to suggest at all that we withhold love from those in other Christian congregations or even other denominations. Not at all. There is indeed one family of God that transcends denomination and transcends even the Reformed Church. And yet, we also recognize that within our church family, there is an embodiment of the church, which particularly calls for this duty of loving one another. So it will be that way. And I take it, but I trust that you won't say that it's limited to that. So, this activity of loving one another is the first word I wish to speak in this area is consider. Consider. That's really the beginning of the carrying out of this duty of loving one another. You must give some thoughts to the members of this congregation that you are part of, to your church family. Think of their faces Think of their names. Think of their persons. Lay them up before your mind and truly consider the ones that the Lord presses upon you today that you must love them. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
He's saying, take your eyes off of your little world with your cares, your worries, your responsibilities. Lift up your eyes and consider the needs of others. That is, in context, what he's saying. And in particular, as you've read Philippians chapter 2, you know it is speaking about having the mind of Christ. Christ did not simply seek his own good, but he sought for the good of his people in becoming a servant and going all the way unto the cross. So also it must be with us. And it can be very easy to be consumed and occupied with all manner of other responsibilities in life. But in the midst of all those things, you have been separated unto this church. There are people whom the Lord would have you to think about daily and to incorporate into all of your plans. It should be this. How can you love well your church family, your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Think about how they live. Think about what they are going through. Think about how they can be encouraged. Think about the members of your church family. Consider. Second word that we will put forward here, and that is pray. After we consider, then we pray. It's been well said that you can do more than pray, but you can't do more than pray until you have prayed. And prayer is indeed an indispensable means of loving our church family. It's striking that the word that uh, is used for fervent, it's used in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 5, to describe the activity of the prayers of the church for Peter when he was imprisoned for the cause of Christ. Acts, chapter 12, verse 5, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So I think where you have the idea of stretching, of exerting yourself in fervent prayer, uh, the translators there took that as primarily that without ceasing, without stopping, they kept this up. I don't know if you've ever uh, tried to pray throughout the night for someone, but it's not an easy thing. Disciples themselves found that when the Lord asked them to pray throughout the night. But on that occasion, they were so worried about their brother in the Lord that they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And, and they, they would not give the Lord any rest, as it were, while their brother was in that affliction and bondage. I always find it convicting when I read the book of Romans Chapter 1, verse 9, and Paul speaks about how often he prays for uh, the church there in Rome. This is what he says. Romans chapter 1, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. He's calling God as a witness. This God I call as a witness, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Incredible. He can write that in utter honesty that the very church that he was, he was writing that letter to in Rome, the particular names of the members of that church, he mentioned them by name before the throne of grace. 
before his father. Indeed, that is one of the clearest signs that you are loving others, that you particularly pray for them. Are you praying for your church family? Are you praying for them by name? Are you praying for them without ceasing? Is it all too easy to make your prayers to be a laundry list of the things that are going on with you and your little world? And all the while, you know that there are those struggling, fighting great battles, going through great afflictions. Are you mentioning them in your prayers? I speak to the heads of the, of the homes, the fathers in particular. When you lead your family in family worship, do you pray for the members of your church? Do your children and the rest of your family understand that this is not a family that is just on their own, but you are praying for the members of this church. And when one of them is struggling, you mention them particularly. Maybe it's even this simple. Make a list of all the members of your church family if you can. Make a list of them and go through them as you're praying. Think about them. Meditate as you're praying and say, Lord, you know this person and you know what they need. Give them a special measure of your grace and blessing. So we've seen consider, we've seen pray. Third, sacrifice. Sacrifice. Indeed, there must be a tangible outworking of this love in our lives if it is to be true. It says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I wonder if the apostle had it in particular, that law which Jesus had said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. The law of Christ. How is that fulfilled? Well, you see, a brother or sister is carrying a burden, a heavy load, a trial, an anguish, an affliction, a temptation, a difficulty. And what is the mind of the true Christian? Well, that is my brother. That is my sister. They must not carry that burden alone. I will bear that burden with them. That's what it is. And it is a sacrifice, surely, to bear the burdens of others. We have enough burdens of our own, we often think. We have enough things weighing us down lest we take on the burdens of others. What would it mean to bear the burdens of others? A sacrifice of your time, a sacrifice of your comfort, a sacrifice of even your possessions. Whatever it may be, if it will lighten the load that has been placed upon the shoulders of a brother or sister, that is what you are called to, Christian. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 we began to consider that text already, but I want to show you what follows from it. First John chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
So it is that the true manifestation of love won't be just in the word. I love you. I love you, brother and sister. But in the deed and in the truth, following through with what you say. Showing practically that you care for others. Showing that they are not alone. But they have those who care for them and are willing to bear their burdens with them. A phone call. A visit. A word in season, whatever it may be. In particular, sometimes it comes down to very practically that we give generously to the needs around us. Indeed, we have a diaconate, and that is there to help. We have indeed the funds that we give to regularly, but we're not limited to that. We can give as we see needs around us. James chapter 2, verses 15 to 16 If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Indeed, apply that more than just the food and the the clothing. But how many people need fellowship? How many people need encouragement? How many people could genuinely profit from your interest in their life? And if we say they are well all on their own, well, then I I put to you that there is a deficit there of true love for the brothers and sisters. Final word I wish to speak to you in this connection, edification. Edification, not a word that we sometimes use today, but one that is so much more precise than simply pleasing someone or or making them happy. No, to edify someone, it speaks of serving their ultimate good, both in body as well as soul, of bringing them into the purpose that God has for them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So it is whatever we say unto a brother and sister in the Lord, it must be the standard that we are subjecting it to. Is this a word unto edification? Is it ministering grace unto the brothers and sisters in the Lord? Is it something that is going to bring them more into the likeness of Christ? And where we speak of fellow Christians, even we must recognize that must sometimes mean speaking of one another's sin. I always find it striking, and I've mentioned this verse before, but I will keep on mentioning it because it is very important. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17. It begins in this way. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, but what shalt thou do? Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. What is the sign that you're not hating your brother in your heart, but rather loving him, you rebuke him when he sins. A striking thought that it can actually be an act of hatred to keep silent where you observe serious departures from the word of God 
and a brother and sister in the Lord. Sometimes that can be that attitude. Well, that's, that's his problem or that's someone else's problem. No, there is your brother and sister. That which is good for them ultimately in a spiritual sense and an eternal sense is that they be called to face their sin and repent from it. It says in the book of Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering myself lest Thou also be tempted. A very good compliment to the other verse. Yes, there is a rebuke, but what is it given in? In the spirit of meekness, with a view to restoring. Not a view to tearing down, but of building up. Not of driving away, but of drawing into the embrace of love. The love of God and the love of the church whereby we restore that which has departed from the true way of the Lord. If there is not this attitude where in the most fundamental sense we are seeking to correct and deal with sin in a biblical way, then in that way we are falling short of the love that the Lord has called us to. If we just want to have a relationship where, where we do not talk about sin, then there is no spiritual good that can come of that. And we ultimately wind up just sharing in the sins of others. No. We speak about sin with that spirit of meekness and we call one another to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. just want to speak in the final place about this word of edification. And it's not just when you see a great big problem that then you rush in and and finally you're beginning to worry about their spiritual state. No, every one of us in an ongoing way should take an interest in what is going on in each other's hearts. We ought to really cultivate that shared trust and relationship where we can actually speak about what really matters. And sometimes... Unique relationships can crop up where you are given a wonderful opportunity to encourage someone else in the way of faithfulness. I tell each one of you today, don't once think that because of who you are, there is not an important place in encouraging one another to follow the Lord. And sometimes it is one of the most valuable gifts that can be given to a brother and sister. To that end, I think of what you find in the book of Titus, where the apostle especially instructs that the elderly in the church, the older men and the older women, should be taking the effort to instruct the younger in a proper godly way of life. Listen to this passage from Titus chapter 2. He commands that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh God holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, 
to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. How important that is. What wonderful opportunities you can have to take a a younger saint or a younger man or a younger woman under your arm and say, "Let let me tell you some of the wisdom that I have learned in life's walk. Let me tell you something of what the Lord has done for me in ensuring that I conduct myself in my family, in my marriage, in a godly and upright way. You notice that last point especially hits home. They are to do this, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Where we hold back from really investing in one another and building one another up in godliness, we are really running that risk, aren't we? We are blaspheming the word of the Lord by not rightly conducting ourselves as a gospel community, one that is seasoned with the grace of the Lord. And brought into fellowship with him. Well, I want to trust that I've, lived, I've blessed all of us with, with some things to consider. That these are the ways in which we are to practically love one another. We are to consider one another. To pray for one another. We're to sacrifice for one another. And we're to seek the edification of one another. I'll leave you with these words from 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 to 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have of him, that he who loveth